Please take your Bibles and open them to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, there is a, I think, a dense section of Scripture that I want to take a little bit more time to work through because I think it's valuable for us to recognize that the Apostle Paul is deeply concerned. I could say because it's in Scripture, the Holy Spirit is deeply concerned that the church is experiencing spiritual defections from the gospel. That'd be the church in Philippi, and I, I imagine that like any church, that gospel defections are a matter of uh, two general categories of challenge. You might remember the parable of Jesus where he talks about the gospel like a seed landing on the soils of the human heart. And if you recall that parable, he explains how there are four responses in that human heart, one, it's as though, it's as though the, the gospel never gets anywhere. Satan quickly snatches it away. There is one soil representing the human heart where it is fertile soil, soft soil. The gospel sinks its roots in and that person is redeemed and stays redeemed. And then there are two soils. One of the soils, a, a kind of rocky soil where the roots do not penetrate in, and the gospel does not take hold in the person's heart. And the son, suffering, causes that person's gospel belief to wither. The other soil, clearly there are weeds within it, and as that, the gospel seems to begin to, to grab a hold of that soil, weeds choke it out, and, and Scripture says that's the cares of this world. So, so there, there are two general categories Jesus gives us for people who seem to profess or, or show gospel fruit and then, and then don't. One is because of suffering, the sun, the scorching heat of living in this world and following after Christ. And the other, the loss of freedom to sin, that to do your own thing, to follow what you want in rejection of Christ the pleasures of this world, and, and both of those kind of categories, I think, capture what the Apostle Paul is concerned about by causing spiritual defection. Now, his point is not to press in on those, th those outside sources, but to press on the person and help them understand that gospel defection is something you and I should be aware of. Now, if you're theologically trying to consider what God is um, saying in these texts, I don't think his communication is, we lose our salvation. I think his point is that salvation is proven by not quitting. Well, how does God encourage us to not quit? He tells us what quitting would mean. He reminds us of the seriousness and the significance of sin. He reminds us of the value and the treasures of heaven, and that, for those who have the Holy Spirit, secures us. For those who don't have the Holy Spirit, they neglect and reject and casually hear those warnings to their own demise. So we come to this text in, in Philippians chapter 3. I want you to look down with me. I'm going I'm to um, particularly focus on, on verse 18, 19, 
and then I'm going to just touch the context around it just a bit as we introduce this text to you. He says, for many of whom I often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now, as, as the Apostle Paul is describing this person who I think we could say is under, they have a gospel defection, but I think the real danger here that he's pushing on is they're deceived about it. They're, they're confused about who they are. In fact, if you go back to verse 16, he says, let us hold true. Looking for one, he says, hold fast. And so his concern is that the church going through the course of walking with Christ, following Christ, that the pressures around them might cause them to let go of Christ. And in the middle of discussing this, he says, and I've been telling you with tears. Okay, so let's just ask the question, who has he been telling us about with tears? Well, there is a group of people in 3, 2, 3, and 4 that, that have this kind of religious kind of pharisaical approach to life. Do this, do this, do this, right? Well, that's not who he's describing when in this text he says that God is their belly and they glory in things that should bring shame. So he's not talking about kind of this pharisaical approach of an unbeliever, because the Pharisees are unbelievers. And because he's speaking about them with tears, it's hard to believe he's speaking about the unbeliever who he never has any personal affection for. Instead, I think the best way to understand this text is the Apostle Paul is warning the Philippians by pointing out people who were formerly under the care of the church, people he probably personally knows, and he, out of concern for the current church and out of concern for those sweet people who've wandered away from the faith, is telling them with tears, don't let go. So, not using the words interchangeably here, but I think we have gospel defection. That is, they claim to have been believers, they probably still think they are believers. And that's where deception comes in. Gospel defection and gospel deception are twins, and they lead to damnation. Like, I'm a member of the church, but I don't go very much, but I'm still a Christian. Don't tell me I'm not. And you start evaluating that person according to this text, and you realize that while they say they believe in Jesus, while they say they're Christians, while they claim to be saved, their life has a pattern that shows that not only are they not saved, that that claim is a deceitful claim. And the tragedy is they're self-deceived. That having, having had a gospel defection, they are unaware of it. And the apostle Paul is pleading with the church of Philippi to be clear about this. All right, that's the framework. So let me just kind of like lean in a crossway for a moment here. It is highly likely that within the course of history of this church, you are sitting with people who at some point might be defined by this text. How do you make sure it's not you? 
I mean, maybe three years before, if the Apostle Paul were to visit Philippi, the people he's speaking of were sitting in the chairs, listening to him, being like, amen, this is so good. And now they've defected, but still claim to be Christian. How do you make sure you don't sit and listen to the Word of God and say amen today, and three years from now be a defector who still thinks you're in the household of faith? That's what this text should call upon us to do is, is it builds for us a warning system like a dashboard in your car that should flicker when you are in danger and keeps you from running your spiritual life away from Christ. All right, so again, let's look at the text, and I think we see about five kind of defining markers that, that, that should lead us to care and concern in our own spiritual lives. Verse 18, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, notice that emphasis there is on walking. He says they walk as enemies. He is not talking about belief, um, orthodoxy. Their doctrine is straight. That's what ortho means, right? They got orthodontist, it makes your teeth straight. Orthodoxy is straight doctrine. That's not the problem here. It's their orthopraxy. Right? They, they, their, their, their practice is twisted, is misshaped, is not aligned to Christ. So they might claim orthodoxy. I know Jesus. I know the gospel. I believe the truth. I do right. Right? And Paul's saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. Just because you say you know Christ, just because you can quote Calvin... Just because you know systematic theology does not mean you're walking by the gospel's light. You are, you are not necessarily following Christ merely because you know good doctrine and affirm it. So we could maybe understand his point if, if I'm just going to kind of move it into what we think in, in practice is our behavior reveals our belief. Our behavior reveals our belief. You know, it's like, it's like the, the person who says that they know smoking causes cancer while they're smoking probably internally is saying, but it won't happen to me. There's this kind of intuitive denial while claiming outwardly the truth. They do not walk after Christ. In fact, their lives indicate they practice a rejection of the cross of Christ. I don't think this means they hate Jesus. I don't think that's the point of this, this line here. I think the point is, is that they look at the cross of Christ, they look at the sacrificial life where he says, come take up your cross and follow me, and they despise that call. They say, I want Jesus, but I don't want my cross. I want to follow after Jesus, but I don't want to deny myself. I do not want to suffer, but I want heaven. And he says, no, 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 if you live like that, you're actually living out hostility. You're rejecting Christ. Jesus Christ died not merely to save you from hell, but to save you from the thing that takes you to hell, your sin. It is it is practically rejecting the purpose of the cross to say, I want sin and the Savior. Right? That, like, 
you cannot consistently hold sin and hold the Savior. And so if your life is patterned in sin, if you are embracing sin, you are actually an enemy of the cross. You're an enemy of the gospel. You are an enemy of the very purpose and mission of Christ. He died to save you from it. Why are you wallowing and embracing sin? You're an enemy of it. I think that's helpful just for some of you who are overly anxious about whether or not you're saved. Hear what he's saying here. He's not saying that in a moment of temptation and maybe thoughtlessness, you do or say something that is sin. For that, First John reminds us that he's faithful and just to forgive us. He is talking about someone whose pattern, whose walk is in contradiction to the purpose of the gospel. That's a significant difference. So if your lifestyle is patterned in sin, that person should be warned. You might be a defector who's deceived. But if you are a sinner who is saved and happens to sin, run to your Savior, ask for forgiveness, and embrace Him and live for Him, and that's evidence you are saved. So do do not be overly introspective. If you love Jesus, you do not love Him perfectly, you will sin. Keep on loving Him. Keep on being faithful. So we have these gospel defectors. Their walk or their behavior reveals belief. But then you see the results I think your, your notes might, might say revealed. But the results of this person, they're doomed to destruction. In fact, eternal destruction. Look again in, in verse 18. He says, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. I don't think that's difficult for us to see the way we've framed it. But I think the point is, is clear. There is a type of person who believes that they can wander into the house of sin, walk out the back door, and back into the house of faith. You know, they might say something like this, I, I know God wouldn't be pleased if I do, do this thing, but he'll forgive me. Or, um, you know, just, I was talking to my daughter this last week about life and We're talking about marriage and stuff like this. I can imagine a young man or woman who finds someone that they deeply care about saying, I will choose to marry them even though I know I shouldn't. They're not a believer, and God will forgive me. And they kind of look at it as a one-time choice. I say I do. It's done. And then they will turn back and ask for forgiveness on the other side of the wedding day. I think the apostle is concerned that that person is taking lightly the gospel and thinking that they can choose sin and take a spiritual shower and be clean on the other side does not understand the gospel itself. Now, I am not trying to tell tell any of you that your sin is unforgivable. I'm trying to tell you, don't you dare lean on the grace of Christ in order to sin against Christ. That presumption Paul warns about in Romans, it is a common twisting of the gospel. That's why he says, he asked the question, because the presumption might be if God is rich in forgiveness and rich in mercy, and he is, should we continue in sin that grace would overflow to us? He then says, 
God forbid that you would ever do that. Don't you know that with Christ we've died? We've been buried with him by baptism that we might be dead to sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. And if you yield yourselves, members, really instruments, almost like an orchestra, or maybe weapons as in a, a band of warriors carrying weapons, but if you yield your body as weapons of sin, you are actually under the slave mastery of sin. Romans 6 deals head-on with the thought that somehow you can enter into the house of sin and sneak out the back exit and still get saved. So the Lord is allowing you to suffer. Do not escape through sin. If the Lord is allowing you to, to be tempted by the opportunity to sin for temptation and for your own pleasure, do not allow the Lord's permission for you to be tempted. Do not take advantage or sin Excuse me, do not, do not let that sin take advantage over you that you think Christ's grace will forgive you on the other side. That, that's gospel denial. So he warns the church, listen, if you've defected, God's judgment will still come for you. So let me go back to that ortho, orthodoxy idea. This person now, in orthodoxy still, says, I believe it, I know God will forgive me. God says, you're walking as an enemy of the cross of Christ. Your end is what? Destruction. God's judgment will be certain for those who reject the gospel in practice, not merely doctrine. So then he continues. In his third statement, he says, their end is destruction, their God is their, their belly. Now, this is actually a really helpful line because we now know what, what moves this person, what motivates them is what? Literally, the word is belly. What do you think the point is? It's their personal desires, their appetites, their desires that, that move them to want stuff. Now, again, I think this is where we, we broaden out the context. Paul has been pushing on the Philippian suffering. But here, it's not merely suffering. It's what? It's appetites. And again, the, the metaphor is pretty clear. You like good food in your belly. And so you enjoy and pursue the things you like that are, that are satisfying to your appetites. And likewise, in a spiritual level, notice how he phrases it. They're what? Their God is their appetites. He's suggesting to us that the person who pursues what they want is actually an idolater against God. That is, if your desires are moving your life, if the engine and the drive of your life is self-centered, that's idolatry. I mean, often how we evaluate what we do in life amounts to, in some total, what we want. But I, I don't like this job, I'm going to get a different job. I don't like this person, I'm going to get a different spouse. I don't like this situation. I will escape. And then we slap all sorts of spiritual frosting on top of that garbage cake of sin. And it looks pretty. Let's be honest. There's a lot of sin that we do that's really stuff we want to do 
that when someone asks us or we get counsel, we give a lot of spiritual frosting to cover up the garbage. I would imagine that if you want to sin in any respectable way from the world's point of view, you can find a wise counselor to tell you to do it. You want to quit doing right? You'll be able to find a friend that will tell you to quit it. We can find the right, I shouldn't say the right, we can find the counselor we want that affirms our desires and calls it wisdom. If you're driven by your desires, your, your idol, your God is just that. It's your appetites, and your appetites will never save you. There's no redemption in following your pursuits and your desires. Second Timothy has this sobering condemnation. It says the last days will be times of difficulty for people will be lovers of of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, boastful, abusive, disobedient to parents. Like, isn't that sinless? Isn't that impressive? You have, like, lovers of money. Proud, disobedient to parents. Some of you teenagers that are still living at home, that should hit you between the eyes. Your parents don't know what you're doing, but you're disobeying. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable. Once you're offended, you will not be unoffended. Slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. That is the sanctifying, rescuing power of God that helps us to resist sin and find satisfaction in Christ is not seen as a rescue at all. God may and often calls us to places of unpleasant circumstance, unpleasant relationships, unpleasant financial situation. God calls us to very challenging places for the pursuit of his glory and your Christ-likeness because he's good. And his power is granted to sustain you. This is why he would say something like, I will never leave you or forsake you. This is why the psalmist finds such comfort in saying that even in the valley of death's shadow, behold, you are with me. God does not promise you the prim path of roses. He promises you to be with you. And in the middle of suffering, 
When life hurts and we are struggling to do right and we are ready to quit, the question is, do you believe in the power of God or you do, do you deny its capability of sustaining and strengthening and bringing contentment in suffering? If you believe the gospel, believe the God of the gospel will be with you. If you are having a hard time being patient with your child, listen, any parent gets it. If you're having a hard time being patient, do you believe that God wants to grant you patience and will do so as you commit by faith to obey Him regardless of what's going on in your home? Or are you going to use anger and manipulation to control your kids? This This is someone whose idol is pleasing self. Suffering does not compute in that calculation. And so they walk. Is your idol self? They also celebrate the success of this idolatry or this sin. Look back in Philippians 3 again. They glory in their shame. Like the schoolyard bully who's stolen someone's lunch money and punched them in the nose, they brag about and glory in the success of their wickedness. And I'm sure we've all hear, heard people glory in their shame. Glory in the thing that was wicked. Have you ever heard someone brag about putting someone else in their place? Have you ever heard someone laugh about putting another person down and shaming them publicly? It wouldn't surprise us in a locker room environment to hear someone talking about uh, successful conquests. I imagine the prison is filled with people glorying away from the ears of those who might turn them in of successful crime. I can remember vividly talking to a believer who spoke about their divorce and said, that's the best thing that ever happened to me. The twisted theology comes to light in those types of claims. God may be gracious to you. Listen, divorce happens because someone sinned. And that's a tragedy to be lamented. And I am very thankful for a God who works in spite of and despite the sin of this world to do us good. I'm glad that he rescues people from sinful situations. I'm sure there are many pregnancies out of wedlock for which we are very thankful for the children God has granted. We do not need to condemn the children, but let us be careful we do not glory in the shame of the sin that brought them about. The sin and the child are two significantly different things. Christians, we need to be thoughtful about our counsel, about how we view sin, especially when it, when it rescues us from suffering that we do not look on the rescue as something to glory in. We do not praise a sinful escape ever. And I think we should, I think we should rebuke the Christian who says otherwise. So, like, when someone says, yeah, I left that bum and it's the best thing I ever did, I think any Christian in the room should challenge that and condemn the claim. 
and call that person to a heart of repentance towards sin in the past. Maybe I can be a little more pointed and very pastoral. We have disciplined people out of this church who are living in an ongoing life of sin. And it would not surprise me that if those persons were celebrating something that wasn't um, blatantly sinful, that our church would affirm them. So let me give you an example. Imagine a young lady who's living with her boyfriend, and so she's removed from the church because she's embracing sin, right? She, she might say she loves Christ. She might say she follows the gospel of Christ, but her walk is disobedient, right? You with me? And so our church says, you are walking as an enemy of the cross of Christ. Your end is destruction if you do not turn and repent. And, and she doesn't. And while pleading with her, she continues to embrace a life of sin as she embraces her unwed boyfriend. And so in sorrow and with tears, we remove her from the fellowship of the gospel because she's walking as an enemy of the cross of Christ. That that person posts a public picture of them dating that boy who has led her away from Jesus and our church affirms her. Shame on the church of Christ. Shame if you affirm sinners and glory in their shame. If that's you, confess and repent. Every appeal by the church of Christ to that sinner should be to call them away from the anchor that is dragging them to hell. Because they're enemies of the cross of Christ while they live in that sin. We need to have gospel clarity. It is not merely saying, I believe and love Jesus. You walk as a lover of Jesus. You follow him regardless of where his footsteps lead you. And they lead us into sweet celibacy until marriage and purity within marriage. He leads us to green pastures of righteousness. Do not deny that by thoughtlessly interacting with people who are struggling in sin and need to be called away from it. It is always a heartbreaking warning for me when people are entering into membership in our church and they recount testimonies of past churches who did not call them or their family members out of sin. And they're heartbroken because of the wreckage of sin in their homes. And they're just hoping for a church that will be loyal to Christ and call them and their family away from sin, regardless of the cultural baggage that it might carry. So we don't need to stone divorcees. We do not need to shame the immoral young person who's repentant. I do not want to go back to an angry hellfire and brimstone church that almost seems to cackle over the flames of hell. But a sloppy, soft, unclear proclamation of a God whose goodness calls us to holiness and calls us away from sin and becoming a church that permits sin to wreck its people will lead them to destruction. That's not loving either. And it feels as though the church is caught between two impossibly ugly approaches. I do not want to be in a church that has no room for sinners to seek grace. 
And I do not want to be in a church that has no room to call sinners away from sin, because that is not grace either. So let us make sure that we do not celebrate or affirm people implicitly or explicitly who because of sin get escape. Instead, let us stand with them in their suffering. Let us carry their burdens with them to the Lord. Let us be for them the very presence of the ministering Savior who gives a cup of cold water in his name, who clothes those who are naked, who shares with them in their sorrows. Let us be that type of church because we could be the type of church that calls people with bad counsel to escape hurt by sin. Finally, you'll notice they value this current life above heaven. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glory is in their shame with minds set on earthly things. What is the, what is the, the malfunction of their value system? It's this. It's that this life becomes the sum total of what drives their decision. They have lost the eyes of faith that know heaven is coming. They choose to value their money, their life, their, their, their satisfaction, their comfort today. They value that and do not value heaven. And that's a faith problem. Look at the very next line. But our citizenship is where? In heaven. I don't feel like a citizen of heaven. Do you feel like one? And sometimes when we sing, I feel like I'm getting close. I love our church's singing. But man, I... I look in the mirror and I, I know I'm a proud man. I know I struggle with unkindness and thoughtlessness. I struggle with laziness. Sometimes I'm an angry person. Man, I got all sorts of problems. Don't you? I don't feel like a citizen of heaven. This world is sin-cursed. It hurts us. I'm reminded on a regular basis that this life is painful. And sometimes I, I'm experiencing that secondhand as I try to help others, and you do too, right? When you disciple others and you see them hurt and you see them crying, you see them brokenhearted, and you know this world is messy. What keeps you moving and joyful has got to be a grasp that heaven is real. Heaven is eternal. And I have been moved and on God's ledger, my citizenship is in heaven. And that one day will culminate not merely in the ledger, not merely in my legal status, but I will one day set foot in heaven. I will one day see my king, my king literally in the flesh. I will one day be united with people who never sin against me again. And that's not even as good as the fact that I won't sin against them. And honestly, my greatest sadness is the life are how I've sinned against others. Would it be nice not to sin? Would it be nice not to want to? Heaven is real. Heaven is real. And, and if you forget that your citizenship is in heaven, then you will not be laying up treasures in heaven. You will not live for heaven. You will not give away your money and your time and your life and your energy to people who sometimes don't repay you. You will begin to live for the pleasures and the appetites of this world if you lose sight in heaven. And that's really the cure, isn't it? I think the cure is twofold in this text. 
It is to grab a hold of the eternal glories in store for those who love Jesus Christ, and thereby you love Jesus and his promises. And so, so the solution to, to this kind of defection from the gospel isn't to just preach the gospel in your ears and in your head. It is to love the, the one who is the gospel, Jesus Christ. And it is to accept by faith that the promises of eternity in heaven are true. And so while in this life I might suffer, I don't just merely just bite the bullet, grind my teeth, and suck it up. Like, can we just be honest? No one in here is manly enough to do that and stick it out? Instead, we hold tenaciously to Jesus to please him, to love him, to be true to him. And what drives us is the goal of eternity with him. So, thinking through how you do that, I, I do think Jesus gives a lot of help when he says, where your treasure is. Did you guys finish that? Okay. Now, I want you to, I want you to see that as an as a instructional, not just a declaration, an instructional point. So if where my treasure is, my heart will follow, how do I start to move towards someone who lives for heaven? Well, I, I need to put my treasure there. Because, I mean, the, the point of that text is, if I put my treasure over here, my eyes will turn there and I will follow. So in deliberate work, we begin to invest in heaven and then we care. And this is true of all of us. If you have a little kid that maybe within our church, you know, comes up to you and says, hey, mister, I'm in a soccer league, and I, I would like some money, so I get soccer uniforms. It's really easy to do right now. I have a cold. <laughs> don't you, like, after you give him, like, 20 bucks so he can have nice soccer uniforms, don't you, like, within a couple weeks, want to ask that young little boy, like, hey, how's the soccer team doing? Aren't you a little more interested? And maybe when you see him all proud, holding a soccer ball with his parents at the game, wanting to like appreciate that picture, like, hey, man, we had a little part in junior. Like, that's so cute. Like, you care because of a little gift. How much more as you begin to, to rest in God's call to suffer as you follow after Christ, and you give Deeply, whether it's financially or of your time, whether, whether it's like even this, as we give people to missions, don't you find your heart caring about the people we send them to? If we send Pastor Mike and Liz to Africa, don't you think your prayers will follow? And if we invest treasures, like literally finances in Africa, don't you think your heart will want to know where that investment is being used and how good and fruitful the ministry there is or how unhealthy and wasteful your investment is? Because where our treasure is, there our heart is. If our citizenship is in heaven, the, one of the ways in which we strengthen our fortitude and faith so that in suffering we don't quit is by deeply investing in the work of Christ because we care about the person of Christ. And we cultivate that affection for heaven and heaven's king.
full circle just to, to, to summarize this text. Gospel defection is incredibly deceitful. Evaluate your walk. Evaluate how you pursue your appetites and desires. Evaluate what you celebrate in life, how you interact with those who are struggling in sin, and deliberately choose to value eternity so that in doing these things, you might secure for yourself a confidence and a joy that heaven and heaven's king are yours. Because the danger is, it's not, and you don't know it. So how do you know it? Love the king. Love his values. Live for him, and heaven is yours. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for listening to us, for welcoming us into your presence as your dear children. We thank you that you both warn and encourage us to not let go of Jesus. He is our precious Savior, and he is the only Savior for anyone who would be saved. And Father, he is good. And he saves all who come to him. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in him, turning from their sin, is saved for now and forever. Father, thank you for securing us forever through texts like these that warn us of the dangers of sin. Lord, help us, as long as it's called today, to live for heaven, to repent of sin, to be turning to our Savior and holding tight. Lord, for those that are suffering, whose hold on Christ is weak, give us eyes as a church that we might come around them, that we might see that weakness and see that need, that we might strengthen their arms, that we might challenge them and love them to stay with Christ. Lord, if there's anyone in this room who does not know the Savior, who is not saved, I ask that today through the Holy Spirit's conviction, you would bring them to forgiveness that they might be saved. Lord, hold us fast and help us to hold fast to Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.